Welcome to your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, coming up an exclusive clip from our client briefing all about a potential Bank of Japan rate hike. But first, Neil's out this week, but I'm happily joined by Jenny McCune, our Chief Global Economist. Hi, Jenny. Hi, David. It's Thursday, 28th of September, uh, London afternoon, as we're recording this. Our Q4 Global Economic Outlooks being published in the coming week. I know that you and the team are beavering away to get it ready for delivery thought we could get a sneak peek. Let's start with the title. It's Higher for Longer Won't Survive Economic Weakness. And, and that refers to interest rates staying at elevated levels, which markets are now pricing in. But we're not convinced that, that higher for longer will last, are we? No, we're really not. And I think that's why it's, it's the key theme of our global economic outlook this time around, because it's the key area in which we're very much distinct from what seems to be priced into the market. Interest rates are already high. They're they're restrictive. They're restricting economic activity. And you can see that in measures of financial conditions, including our our own measures, which are very tight, and in credit growth, which has weakened a lot. And we think it won't be long before that prompts much more widespread economic weakness, even in the US, which, of course, has been relatively resilient lately. Also, inflation's falling, even once you strip out energy effects, underlying or core inflation is is easing. So some of the work of central bankers has been done already. And as inflation falls further, that will mean that the real policy stance will, will tighten. Policy will become even more restrictive, even if central banks do nothing. Um, and at that point, with more severe downturns taking hold, we think that central banks are going to need to start to cut interest rates next year. What does that imply about uh, what's happening in bond markets. I ask because the US Treasury, the 10-year yield is at just above 4.6% as as we're talking. Yeah. What's our forecast for that? I notice also long-dated yields also rising in UK and in Europe. What are we expecting there? Yeah, that increase has been quite remarkable. And of course, all the reflection of this higher for longer kind of rhetoric that's going around now. We're at a post-global financial crisis high at this point, but but we don't think that's going to be sustained. And that all relates to the story I, I, I've just been telling about um, interest rates ultimately starting to fall. We expect US 10-year uh, yields to fall to 3.75% by the end of this year and to 3.25% by the end of next year. And that's essentially because we expect monetary policy to be loosened sooner and more aggressively than the market's pricing in. We're anticipating 200 basis points of cuts in the in the US, which leaves us far below the market. And that's because we expect the economy to be much weaker and core inflation to fall more quickly than the Fed or, or the market. And let's talk a little bit about how monetary policy transmits through the economy. It's something you touched on in your opening answer. We spend a lot of time here talking about monetary policy's long and variable lags. I mean, is this why we're not seeing the kind of downturns we've been expecting? Is this just a question of recession or, or slowdowns delayed? Yes, partly. So so it's partly just about temporary factors. We know that since the pandemic, shortages, product shortages in particular, have eased pretty dramatically. So that's allowed firms to work through some backlogs that that had built up. Also, energy prices until recently were, were falling and households were able to run down some of the savings that they built up during during the pandemic, thanks to supportive fiscal policy. So all of that has been um, supporting economic activity at a time when other fundamental factors, including the change in monetary policy, were, were pointing down. But yes, at the same time, I think that policy tightening has taken 
a long time to feed through, perhaps longer than it has in the past. There's been a shift towards longer term debt in most advanced economies, and that shielded firms and households from the impact of policy tightening to some extent. In the UK, for example, while short-term new mortgage rates have risen above 6%, the average rate on outstanding mortgages isn't much higher than 3%. So it's really not surprising that that households um, and firms aren't really feeling the pinch of tighter policy so far, but we think that's yet to come. Obviously, yeah, I guess as as time goes on, you get more and more of the household uh, business sector exposed to the impact of higher rates. Yes, yes, as they refinance. Yeah, and I think we've seen that this past week. We've seen some pretty ugly Eurozone lending data. And mm. uh, our US team has new research out on, on rising bankruptcies. I will put that on the podcast page. One question I did want to ask about this idea that monetary policy hasn't had that immediate direct effect that had been anticipated. Could it be the case that that this is simply because the natural real interest rate has has risen? Does this all point to the fact that that R star is is higher than pre-pandemic? Hmm, yeah, um, maybe that that's a, a really interesting topic, and it's something that I'm leading some research on at the moment, and we're going to publish that in in the next couple of weeks. Um, and it is true that several of the forces that have weighed on equilibrium interest rates are are going into reverse. For example. As aging populations start to retire, the desire to save will weaken. At the same time, desire to invest should strengthen on the back of innovations in AI and the green transition. But these developments all all take time. This is something that's going to happen over years or even over the next decade. It's highly unlikely that equilibrium interest rates have surged overnight as, as, as the markets seem to assume at the moment. So we think that interest rates will come down in the near term before settling at rates slightly higher than those that we've become used to over the next decade. Yeah. And that work, I think you're prepping it for for around mid-October, aren't you? So um, I'm sure you'll be back on this podcast talking about that. I'm sure we'll be holding uh, lots of our, our drop-ins, our short-form online briefings to discuss that as, as yeah. well. We are going back to this immediate outlook where you have this idea of higher rates feeding through and, and that hits activity. Um, and then it all winds up in this question about you know what the growth picture looks like. And we, we always get this question from clients about, about recession or no recession. Are we just too hung up on, on the R word? We, we always talk about recession and this technical measure of two sequential quarters of, of negative growth, but, but weak mm-hmm. growth is weak growth, isn't it? I mean, how are we quantifying this? Yeah, I think so. It, it's neat, isn't it, to have a technical definition of a recession to be able to say, yes, we're, we're in one now, and to be able to say that contemporaneously without having to have a whole host of data to look back on and and judge with the benefit of hindsight when we were and weren't in a recession. So I, I wouldn't say that those types of, of simple definitions are, are useless, but it is more fashionable now to think of broader measures of recession involving the labour market in particular. I don't think you can really have a meaningful recession without some increase in, in unemployment. And measures of economic hardship are important in the current context too, even if GDP is still growing High inflation is is forcing people to cut back and making things feel very difficult. I think the other point I'd make about recession surrounds the idea of a global recession. And we're asked about that quite a lot. And there's talk about that in in the media. I think really that concept is a little bit overplayed and is a bit of an oversimplification of, of the global economy. This year, for example, China's recovering from a really 
week base and that's going to boost the aggregate global figures but if the major advanced economies slide into recession at the same time that's still going to feel like a, a pretty weak global environment yeah that china recovery that that we have penciled in i guess the key point there is it's is not really going to be anything to write home about because of, of all of these structural challenges that the team have spent so long outlining if we don't look at china i have to ask where where are the bright spots um, yeah, I, th- I think India is probably our main bright spot looking over the tables in our global economic outlook. The economy held up well in the first half of the year. It's now 15% larger than it was before the pandemic, and that's far better progress that, than most economies have made. There's a good chance of some fiscal giveaways ahead of next year's general election. And assuming that food inflation eases as we expect it to, we think the Reserve Bank of India will start cutting interest rates at the start of next year. So that's sooner than most. And we expect GDP growth of about 6.3% this year and 5.5% next. So that's very much the the best in class among the major economies. Long-term prospects are good in India too. Its demographics are really favourable. Its population is, is going to continue growing. And that puts it in a much better position than the advanced economies for sure. But also then China, it's often overlooked that China is experiencing the same kind of demographic drag that a lot of advanced economies are or it will be over the next decade or two. And in a fracturing global economy, India is well-placed to benefit from the friendshoring of manufacturing supply chains, given its large labour supply, its uh, still low-cost base and the gradual progress that it's made on structural reform. That was Jenny McCune on the Global Economic Outlook. It'll be out in the coming day or two and covers all the big DMs and EMs with loads of analysis and two-year forecasts, so check that out. That Treasury yield is down a bit since Jenny and I spoke, but we think it's got further to go. I'll post a recent report by Chief Markets Economist John Higgins about our 3.75% year-end forecast on the podcast page. For the week ahead, look out for our drop-ins about our Spotlight Report on Artificial Intelligence. There's two sessions this coming Thursday with the report's authors. They'll be answering your questions about our findings, including that big boost to productivity growth that we're factoring in, how the technology fits with this idea of global fracturing, and our bullish equities forecasts. Details on the page. I'll also put our September US payrolls preview up there. The data's due Friday 6th, this coming Friday, provided that the US government hasn't shut down by then. I'll also add our US team's analysis of what a shutdown means, just in case a deal hasn't been done by the time this podcast goes out. Now, Jenny talked about our expectations for DM rate cuts, but there is an outlier in that group. Faced with above-target inflation, officials at the Bank of Japan are actively discussing ending its long-standing easy policy stance and raising rates. Will they push the button? And if they do, what will that mean for Japanese and global financial markets? In among our program of drop-ins, our short-form client briefings, we hold a monthly session on the big Asia stories, and this month's was dedicated to the idea that we could be seeing the first interest rate hike in Japan in nearly 17 years. Here's a clip from that briefing. You'll be hearing from Chief Asia Economist Mark Williams talking to Marcel Tillian, who leads our Japan coverage, and Senior Markets Economist Tom Matthews. 
And the clip starts with Tom explaining how financial markets could receive a Bank of Japan rate hike. You know, the base case answer really has to be it wouldn't have too much of an effect. That's your sort of central scenario. And the reason is you look at the swap curve, look at OIS rates, and they already do seem to be pricing in some chance of a hike as uh, long as it's been since the last one, as, and as exciting as it might be and economically very important, it does look like investors are braced for a little bit of tightening. In fact, swap rates suggest that maybe uh, they're expecting the bank to go all the way up to about 40 basis points, positive 40 basis points by the end of next year. So maybe that's even a little bit more than might happen. But yeah, I think the base case is that you know investors are braced for some tightening and, and so it shouldn't be too much of a shock when it arrives. Having said that, you know, we've got pretty recent experience of investors being taken aback by things that look to be uh, otherwise priced in with the tweak to yield curve control. So we saw uh, late last year, I think, for example, that, you know, you looked at futures, you would look at, uh, oh, yes, it looked like a change, a widening of the yield curve control band was already priced in. But when it happened, uh, investors took it as a hawkish move, a sign that there was more to come and, and yields rose even by a lot more than you would have expected given the pricing. So. You know, it's hard to say for sure. Our base case scenario is the market takes it pretty well. But yeah, I think it would be foolish to rule out uh, a bit of a rise in yields. Uh, we've had a question which maybe relates to that, which is what, uh, under what set of circumstances does the JGB um, 10 year go to 1.5%? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I think, I mean, as I say, you know, we've seen times when it was taken as hawkish, notwithstanding that some high tightening is already priced in. What I think is if investors get any sort of inkling that this is a sign of a, a more serious normalization of policy, right, not just taking it into the low positive territory, but actually some quite large number of hikes are, are suddenly on the table, even if that's not the central scenario, but if that's something that the Bank of Japan is discussing, that's when you could see quite a sharp market reaction and you could you know, easily see the yield up up that high, you know, as much as that's like twice what it currently is, it's still not actually that much higher than its current uh, yield really. And so, you know, it, it's it's pretty plausible it could rise, rise that high if you've got a hawkish surprise, or at least a very hawkish surprise. I think for it to be sustained there though, you would need to see the bank actually deliver those rate hikes and that it ran a reasonable amount of them. You know, you look back to the early 2000s when the yield was that high or actually higher and the bank did eventually hike all the way up to, you know, maybe it was three quarters of a percent or something like that. You know, a bit more than is maybe priced in now, but more than we expect. I think for the years to be sustained at that high, you would have to see a bit more of a serious normalization of policy by the bank. There does seem to be a bit of a divergence. I mean, this isn't at all unusual, but but it sounds like so financial markets are pricing in um, fairly reasonable hikes over the next 12 months or, or so. From what I, I, I saw of the last poll of analysts, Marcel, though most analysts are not expecting the Bank of Japan to move until I think the second half of next year. So that seems to be the kind of slight Different set. And then that leads me to what could change to, to shift Wado off, off the course he seems to be on. And I wonder whether actually something that could change before most analysts are expecting hikes in the second half of next year would be the Fed. So do you think um, it would it would change the picture if, let's say, in the first half of next year, the Fed started cutting rates quite aggressively? Would that um, change uh, the Bank of Japan's course of action? I, I think so. I mean, if if the Fed were to cut aggressively, the I mean, we already are forecasted ten yields next year will the US will will come down again, and that this will result in 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 the end strengthening quite a bit, and that should take some of the heat out of the result in a further fall in import prices. They are they're already falling quite quite rapidly, and given that import prices have been the key driver of inflation, that will cert, that will certainly result in in further slowdown. In, in in a general slowdown in, in goods inflation, therefore over inflation, goods inflation has been the the key driver of this this whole in, inflationary um, 
period. So that could potentially change the bank's calculus. I guess the key question is, what, what, are they, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to generally tighten policy or are they just using this this, this window of opportunity to get rid of negative rates? I mean, negative rates is, a, is a, a non, nominally the Bank of Japan is the only central bank in the world that still has them. Uh, I think it creates some problems in, in implementing them. Just as operational, it's a bit more difficult than having uh, very flat interest rates. So the bank might be keen on, on on just getting rid of interest rates, even if inflation were to come down, and then just hike the, the policy rate to just talk in positive territory. And let's talk a bit about financial risks. How great are they in a system that hasn't experienced rate hikes in 15, uh, 16 years? And where are where are the the risks? Do you think? It's a good question. I mean, the if you're right, and, and the bank only only lifts short term policy rates by a token amount, then obviously there won't be a big impact on households and firms. So their borrowing costs will not rise. The banking system should be be largely immune. And I think that's that's most that's a key point because the the, the biggest risk would obviously be if, if banks got into trouble and stopped lending, that could result in a, in a sharp downturn in the economy. Instead, it would be it would probably be any rise in, in long term yields that, that that could cause the biggest damage. And here, it's insurance firms that are most exposed. They hold a large amount of uh, JGBs in their balance sheets, and particularly long-dated JGBs, whose prices are more sensitive to yield movements. So they could potentially record quite large losses. Now, I don't think that, that necessarily matters. I think it have, has much knock-on effect on other parts of the economy. The other sector that could be hit is pension funds. So pension funds hold a lot of assets overseas, and we don't know how much of that, of that exposure they hedge. We know that the insurance companies do hedge most of their, for, their foreign asset exposure, but it's less clear with pension funds. So if there was a sharp strengthening of the yen that would reduce the, 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 the yen value of their foreign assets and could potentially cause, again, some losses. But given that pension funds are very long-term investors, again, yeah, I don't think it has large systemic implications. You mentioned the yeah, foreign asset holdings. Tom, let's bring you in on, on that. You wrote a, a very good note about the impact of um, higher rates on, on foreign um, markets. Could you talk us through your thinking on that? Yeah, I mean... I th- you're right. We wrote about it recently, and I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, first of all, Japanese residents own a very large amount of foreign assets. One reason they own so many foreign assets is because they can get higher interest rates on those assets than they can domestically. So anything that might narrow that gap, and you could see a bit of selling pressure on those foreign assets. And I think we actually arguably do have some recent experience of this with the tweaks to yield curve control. You know, the most recent one, we actually did see quite a rise in long-end treasury yields. Now, I don't think uh, by any stretch of the imagination that that was all about the uh, Bank of Japan's tweaks. There's obviously a lot going on with the Fed and with you know the, the same around the same time the Treasury announced a, a particularly large issuance program. But I do think that the tweaks uh, to yield curve control by the BOJ have contributed to some of that uh, selling pressure at the long end of uh, sovereign bond markets. And so, you know, anything that uh, triggers that could uh, be a problem. I think, though, one reason we're maybe a bit more relaxed about it than than we might be is that there's a difference, I think, between the bank hiking rates at the short end and, and allowing their long end yields to rise. And that, that distinction comes down through the cost of hedging. So you might know at the moment it's actually very expensive for Japanese residents to FX hedge their bonds when they buy them offshore. Uh, in fact, if they do it for three months, we showed some numbers in that update, but you know, they'd more than lose the, the yield pickup they'd get from buying a 10-year treasury instead of a 10-year JGB. So so it's really expensive. And the reason it's really expensive is because of the big gap in short-term interest rates in these two countries, you know, between Japan and the US. So if you, if the Bank of Japan does actually start hiking next year, 
Well, that's around the same time the Fed might well be easing. So you'd actually see that short-term interest rate gap narrow very quickly. And actually that would, by itself, make foreign bonds actually quite a lot more attractive to Japanese residents, not less attractive. And again, there's some back-of-the-envelope maths in that update, which suggests that actually on net, even if long-term yields fell uh, in the US and rose in Japan as a consequence of the divergent monetary policies, that the effects of the short end of the rate hikes and cuts respectively would more than offset that. And so you know, from a huge perspective, treasuries would become more attractive to Japanese residents relative to JGBs. Again, and, and as Marcel alluded to, there's quite a lot of very big and important uh, financial institutions in Japan that do like to hedge their exposures. So I think that would be important. It's one reason I think we're maybe not quite as worried about you know, this piling on further selling pressure in global uh, asset markets. That was Tom Matthews, Marcel Tiliant, and Mark Williams answering client questions on a potential policy shift at the Bank of Japan. We have a page that's dedicated to our analysis on this very question. I'll also link to it on the podcast page, and you can find all our key analysis and forecasts for major DM and EM central banks on our central bank hub, which I'll also link to. CE Advanced clients get all our monetary policy analysis as well as all our proprietary data, including the FCIs that Jenny mentioned earlier. If you want to know more about our premium platform, get in touch. Neil's back next week when we'll be invariably discussing the latest on inflation, central banks and the market's response to all of this. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.